Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, April 7th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Tennessee's House GOP expels Democrat Justin Jones over a gun protest. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announces his bid for the Democratic presidential nomination. A Russian defector reports details on Putin. Iranian and Saudi foreign ministers meet in China. A Maryland report reveals staggering church sex abuse. A kindergarten attack in Brazil leaves four children dead. Idaho passes a law restricting travel for out-of-state abortions. Oklahoma eyes the U.S.'s first religious charter school following a Supreme Court ruling. The British government leases a barge to house 500 asylum seekers. And NPR criticizes Twitter after being labeled state-affiliated media. In our top story, a Tennessee House GOP expels a Democrat over a gun protest. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, USA Today, CNN, Daily Wire, and The Guardian. On Thursday, in a 72-25 vote, the GOP-led Tennessee House of Representatives expelled Democratic Representative Justin Jones for participating in a gun reform demonstration that involved protesters entering the State House last week. Two other Democratic representatives, Gloria Johnson and Justin Pearson, also face votes on their removal. The three Democrats reportedly led the protest without approval days after a deadly shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville that saw three children and three adults killed. The three Democrats immediately lost their committee assignments after resolutions were filed to expel them for allegedly knowingly and intentionally causing disorder and dishonor for the House through their actions. Prior to the House proceedings Thursday, thousands of protesters showed up, with some entering the galleries and others lining up outside. The three Democrats held hands as they walked onto the House floor. Jones' removal, which required a two-thirds majority, is only the third in the last 157 years. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Let's begin with the Democratic narrative spin from Politico. By moving to silence these three Democratic members, Republicans are crushing democracy and creating a chilling effect on future debates. Their disdain for dissent is matched by their hypocrisy, as Republicans in the past couldn't be bothered to expel a member who was accused of sexual assault. But now they're trying to get rid of their political opponents over an act of free speech, a right they are quick to defend when convenient. Counter that with a Republican narrative coming from American Thinker. Democrats are free to criticize the decision, but if the riotous acts of these three members had been committed by Republicans, they would have called it an insurrection, as they did for the January 6th riots, and would have gone beyond just trying to expel them. If Democrats are going to weaponize parts of the government to attack Republicans, they must be prepared to abide by the same standards. And there's a nerd narrative on this story that says there's a 1% chance that the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution will be amended or repealed before the year 2025. It's incredible. Both narratives were virtually identical but opposite. You know, do as we say, not as we do for both. Right. It's always about the goose and the gander, it seems like. Hmm. (laughs) You ever eat goose? I've never had it. I have never had goose, no. It seems like a party foul to me when you have goose. 
Robert F. Kennedy is to challenge Biden for the Democratic nomination. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Politico, The Wrap, Independent, and CNN. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., nephew of assassinated President John F. Kennedy, has announced that he will be running for the Democratic nomination for United States president in 2024. Kennedy, 69, filed a statement for candidacy on Wednesday with the Federal Electoral Commission. The son of the also-assassinated Robert F. Kennedy tweeted in March that he was weighing his candidacy. Kennedy is the second Democrat to officially run for the nomination, joining self-help author Marianne Williamson. He's a former environmental lawyer and a longtime self-characterized medical freedom activist, chairing the nonprofit group Children's Health Defense, an organization known for being critical of vaccines. He published a book in late 2021 titled The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health, which included several controversial claims about Fauci, who he is accused of catastrophic mismanagement of the COVID pandemic. Kennedy has previously stated that his top priority would be to end what he has termed the corrupt merger between state and corporate power and restore America's democracy. Current President Joe Biden remains a strong favorite to once again hold the party's nomination and is expected to announce his bid for a second term. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Press Republican. Kennedy's chances may be outside odds. However, the power of his family's name is undisputed. He has spent his life fighting for clean air and energy against corporate greed. And with many Americans preferring Biden to step aside, Kennedy's political ambition may have legs. And narrative B comes from The Guardian. Kennedy has been publicly denounced by public health experts and even members of his own family as promulgating dangerously misleading and offensive information. This isn't a man that should become the Democratic nominee for president. In fact, his ties to right-wing operatives and power brokers must be closely scrutinized. We have a nerd narrative for this story as well, saying there's a 69% chance that Joe Biden will become the Democratic nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. You know, Robert F. Kennedy actually spoke at, uh, at my college while I was there. Oh, yeah? How was he? Uh, Snoop Dogg was better. <laughs> In our next story, a Russian defector reports details on Putin. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, BBC News, and Ukrainska Pravda. The story of a Russian defector with access to the workings of Russian President Putin's inner world and security arrangements were shared with the media this week after the defector fled Russia to Turkey last year. Gleb Karakulov gave a series of interviews to the Dossier Center, a UK-based investigative group funded by Russian opposition figure Mikhail Khodorkovsky, before those interviews were shared with the Associated Press and a range of European media. Now a wanted man in Russia, Karakulov worked as an engineer in the Presidential Communications Department of the Federal Protective Service, known as the FSO. There, he was responsible for setting up secure communications for Putin and other officials whenever a trip away from the Kremlin was arranged. Karakulov described Putin as increasingly isolated and paranoid, never seen using a mobile phone or the Internet, and insisting on strict COVID measures. He said the Russian president never traveled by plane out of fear of being tracked, opted instead for nondescript trains. In describing why he defected, 
Karakulov said, quote, Our president has become a war criminal. It is time to end this war and stop being silent. Elsewhere, as French President Emmanuel Macron's visit to China continued, and Macron urged his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping to help stop Russia's war in Ukraine. I know I can count on you to bring Russia to its senses and bring everyone back to the negotiating table, Macron said in a joint press conference. Xi said China advocates for peace talks and seeks a political solution, while calling for rational restraint from the international community. He said that both France and China had the ability and responsibility to safeguard world peace. Meanwhile, in an interview with the Financial Times, Andriy Sabiha, an advisor to Ukrainian President Zelensky, said that if Ukraine succeeds with its spring counteroffensive and pushes Russian troops back to the administrative border of Crimea, Ukraine may be ready to open negotiations on the future of the peninsula. However, he added, it doesn't mean that we rule out the way of liberation by our army. All right, thanks for that rundown, Eric. PBS NewsHour gives us a pro-establishment narrative. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire, even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution, after an election, a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. An establishment critical narrative comes from the National Security Archive. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 2% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, that's Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before the year 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Putin is afraid to fly. Oh, Him and John Madden don't want to fly. He should get one of those Madden cruisers. <laughs> he should. Like, <laughs> just get like a super Putin bus. That, that's what I would do. Heck yeah. Top Iranian and Saudi envoys meet in China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Associated Press, CNN, France 24, Al Jazeera, and The Guardian. Following China's mediation of a deal to restore relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia last month, the foreign ministers of both nations met in Beijing on Thursday for the first formal gathering of their top diplomats since 2016, when relations between the two countries became highly contentious. This meeting was capped by an announcement that diplomatic ties will be formally restored, regional stability will be a major priority, and economic cooperation will be pursued. The two sides also agreed to examine ways to expand their cooperation, such as resuming flights between the two countries, mutual trips by official delegations and the private sector, and facilitating visas, with embassies in Riyadh and Tehran, and consulates in Jeddah and Mashhad to be opened. The meeting coincided with a visit by French President Emmanuel Macron and EU Chief Ursula von der Leyen to Beijing, seeking to convince Chinese leader Xi Jinping to push for an end to the conflict in Ukraine. The countries formally broke ties in 2016 after Saudi Arabia executed Shia leader Nimr al-Nimr and Iranian protesters attacked Saudi diplomatic missions, as tensions between the two regional rivals had already flared in the years prior. Last month, Iran and Saudi Arabia issued a surprise joint statement, co-signed with China, 
to restore diplomatic relations after days of negotiations in Beijing, and both countries expressed appreciation to China for its role in sponsoring the talks. Those were the facts, and our first spin is a pro-China narrative coming from Global Times. China has just proven that the U.S. style of creating conflict to pit nations against one another is no way to achieve regional peace anywhere, let alone in the Middle East. These nations are fed up with war, and China has offered them an opportunity to slip out from under the thumb of the U.S. and engage in legitimate, autonomous diplomacy with a different global power. This is the beginning of a new era, one in which countries don't have to cower in the face of Western might just to build economic success. And the anti-China narrative comes from the Financial Times. While it does seem that China's goals in the Middle East are limited to energy and economic relations, what Beijing hasn't yet faced are the dire security problems that come with doing business in the region. Words like common interests and political dialogue are all good in theory, but only time will tell if Beijing can achieve these lofty goals in the face of rising militant groups and sporadic conflict. We have a nerd narrative that says there's a 50% chance that Saudi Arabia will normalize relations with Israel by 2031 if Iran does not get a nuclear bomb by then, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I mean, I'm as red-blooded an American as the as the next guy, but I, I would be pretty impressed if China was able to put a stop to this war. I mean, if they want to be a big player on the world stage, that's that'd be that'd be a feather in their cap. I'd probably fly a few balloons in celebration. <laughs> Turning our attention back to the United States as a Maryland report reveals staggering church sex abuse. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Associated Press, CNN, CBS, WBAL, and BBC News. Maryland Attorney General Anthony Brown's office released a 450-page report Wednesday identifying 158 priests accused of abusing over 600 victims since the 1940s. The report indicated the number of victims is likely higher, as it largely examined cases before 2002. The highly anticipated report into the nation's oldest diocese says the abuse spanned much of Maryland, and some parishes, schools, and congregations had multiple abusers at the same time, including St. Mark Parish in Cadensville, which housed 11 abusers from 1964 to 2004. It also provides graphic descriptions of sexual and physical abuse, including stories of abusers providing alcohol and drugs to victims and forcing them to perform sexual acts. The abusers held various roles in the church, and 43 priests were named. The AG's office started investigating abuse allegations in 2018, with the Baltimore judge ordering a redacted report be released in February. The report anonymized 60 individuals by eliminating specific references and redacted the names of 37 others. A.G. Brown called the release a day of reckoning and accounting and said more than 300 people contacted his office since 2018. Attorneys and investigators reviewed hundreds of thousands of documents and interviewed hundreds of witnesses as part of the investigation. Many victims claim to still feel traumatized by their experiences and could be able to sue the archdiocese. Maryland lawmakers passed a bill ending the statute of limitations on abuse-related civil suits, which currently prevents victims from suing abusers after turning 38. Thanks for those sobering facts, Eric. We have a narrative A from the Baltimore Sun. 
Words cannot adequately describe the abhorrent, despicable, and repeated abuses committed by the Baltimore Catholic Archdiocese. It has taken far too long to hold its members accountable. Hundreds of innocent victims were abused in the most unimaginable ways by faith leaders, and the institution covered up these acts for decades. We can never allow this to happen in the future, and everyone involved in this scandal must be held accountable. Narrative B is coming from the Archdiocese of Baltimore. The Baltimore Archdiocese is profoundly remorseful about the actions depicted in the Attorney General's report, and it prays for the healing of all survivors. The evil acts committed by past church members are not representative of the church today, and there have been many turning points over the past few decades to remove all abusers. The Archdiocese will work tirelessly to help survivors and create a healing environment. Tragedy in Brazil as a kindergarten attack leaves four children dead. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, The Sun, BBC News, CBS News, and the Associated Press. On Wednesday, a 25-year-old man armed with an axe jumped over a wall to enter the playground of Cantino Bom Pastor, a kindergarten center in the southern Brazilian city of Blumenau, where he killed four children and injured another four victims before turning himself in at a police station. Police stated that the assailant, who arrived at the nursery center on a motorbike, had a record of violence and drugs and had stabbed his stepfather in March 2021. At the time of the attack, 40 children were reportedly inside the facility. Among the deceased are three boys and one girl aged from four to seven, and at least one injured child is reportedly in serious condition. Blumenau's mayor, Mario Hildenbrandt, suspended all classes and announced a 30-day period of mourning following this deadly incident and amid rumors of additional attacks. This is at least the second attack on a daycare center to be reported in Brazil, both in the southern Santa Catarina state. In 2021, an 18-year-old man fatally stabbed three children and a teacher in the city of Saudades. School attacks in Brazil have reportedly occurred with greater frequency in recent years, with 16 attacks or violent episodes reported from 2000 to 2022. Last week, a student killed a teacher and wounded several others in Sao Paulo. The first spin for this story is a left narrative coming from Eurasia Review. These horrific attacks are a reflection of a broad range of societal problems within Brazil that have been catalyzed by a surge in radical ideas and extremist discourse on the Internet. These mass attacks on schools are leaving long-term scars on both children and parents. It's time that the perpetrators and the social networks that embolden them are held to account and that disarmament, mental health support, and a firm response to hate speech are adopted. And the right narrative spin comes from Detroit Catholic. Brazil has experienced yet another monstrous school attack as hatred, anxiety, and loneliness fueled by the COVID pandemic run rampant in the nation. The need for decisive action cannot be overstated. However, implementing authoritarian measures isn't the answer. There needs to be a concerted effort to tackle the underlying social problems at the core of the growing violence. And the first step is through encouraging dialogue. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story. It says there's a 50% chance that the global rate of homicide deaths per 100,000 people will be at least 5.32 in 2023. News coming from Idaho as they pass a law restricting travel for out-of-state abortions. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, The Hill, Restoring America, Associated Press, The New York Post, and American Prospect. Idaho has become the first U.S. state to limit interstate travel for abortion, passing a law banning adults from transporting minors for an abortion without parental consent. The legislation was signed by GOP Governor Brad Little. House Bill 242 criminalizes what it describes as abortion trafficking, potentially leading up to five years in prison. Idaho borders several states where abortion is legal, including Washington, Oregon, Montana, and California. The law makes it illegal for an adult to help a minor obtain an abortion, whether through travel or medicine, with the intent to conceal the procedure from the parents or guardians of a pregnant minor. It will also allow parents or guardians to sue the adult traveling with a minor, except in the case of rape or incest. In such a case, the individual will still be liable to criminal penalties. To avoid violating the constitutional right to travel between states, the bill only criminalizes the in-state segment of the trip. 36 states already require parental involvement in abortion cases, though most contain exceptions such as medical emergencies, according to the Guttmacher Institute. Governor Jay Inslee of Idaho's neighboring state, Washington, told Governor Little that the law will not stand and that Washington would continue to harbor and comfort Idaho's traveling residents. The legislation will take effect next month. All right, we have a Republican narrative on this controversial story, and it comes from the National Review. The landmark bill appears to be a stern response to neighboring states who have seen themselves as abortion sanctuaries. The bill continues the state's adoption of stringent bans on abortion in the U.S., although remains open to cases involving rape, incest, and a threat to the life of a mother. This is a clear-cut exercise of both Idaho's domain, under states' rights, and common-sense legislation. The Guardian gives us a Democratic narrative for this story. Seeking to restrict the autonomy of young women attempting to travel for an abortion, as well as those who try to help them, is typical of the cruel and misogynistic anti-choice movement. Such laws continue to view women and girls as property while attempting to destroy the good conscience of those around them who wish to help. This is an assault on women's rights. And we have a nerd narrative on this story. This one says there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before the year 2030, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Oklahoma eyes its first religious charter school since the Supreme Court ruling. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Education Week, The Hill, Washington Post, and Reuters. An Oklahoma school board that considers applications for charter schools in the state Next week, we'll consider whether to approve the application of the St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School, which would be the first-ever taxpayer-funded religious charter school in the U.S. St. Isidore, a virtual school, says it intends to serve as a genuine instrument of the church, which raises questions over the separation of church and state. The St. Isidore application comes months after the Supreme Court of the United States insisted religious schools be counted among the ones that rural students with vouchers in Maine could attend. This was just the latest in a line of rulings by the conservative-leaning court that has made public funding of religious schools possible. Charter schools receive public funding and have to follow the same rules as public schools. However, they avoid some regulations, including school board elections. Religious groups typically open private schools so they can teach religious doctrine without government interference. 
If a religious charter school is publicly funded, it would have to adhere to anti-discrimination laws. The church is moving forward with its application despite Republican Oklahoma Attorney General Gettner Drummond's withdrawal of the state's opinion that public funds can be used by religious charter schools, which had been filed by Gettner's Republican predecessor, John M. O'Connor, in December 2022. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a right narrative coming from Daily Caller. Excluding religious institutions from applying for these funds is a preposterous violation of the Constitution as every other private entity is allowed to pursue the opening of a charter school. Affiliation with religion should not be a disqualifier. A religious charter school would provide more options to parents who have unchallenged say over what type of education their children receive. And the left narrative comes from Forbes. We're seeing the consequences of SCOTUS chipping away at the separation of church and state in violation of the Constitution. Previously, only public schools received public funding. Now there's a risk public funds could be used for discrimination or teaching non-secular beliefs to students. The right-leaning court and lawmakers have opened Pandora's box and there could be far-reaching consequences. In our next story, the British government leases a barge to house 500 asylum seekers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, and The Guardian. The United Kingdom government announced Wednesday that it has leased a barge to house roughly 500 male asylum seekers on England's south coast, sparking criticism from local groups, refugee charities, and Conservative Member of Parliament Richard Drax, who represents the constituency of South Dorset, where the barge will be moored. The Home Office said the vessel will be used to, quote, reduce the unsustainable pressure on the UK's asylum system and to cut the cost to the taxpayer caused by the significant increase in channel crossings. It will house single men while their asylum claims are processed, with the first residents due in the coming months. This comes as the Home Office revealed last week that it spends over £6 million, or almost $7.5 million, a day to house more than 51,000 asylum seekers in over 400 hotels across the country. In other measures to reduce costs, the government stated it was also considering housing asylum seekers in disused cruise ships and military barracks. Meanwhile, charities and human rights organizations have criticized the move as lacking dignity and respect, while Labor and Liberal Democrat members of Parliament have said the plans reflect the Conservatives' failure to tackle the asylum backlog. The number of outstanding asylum claims has increased almost ninefold since 2010 from 19,000 to more than 166,000. Thanks for those facts, Eric. Daily Mail gives us a right narrative spin. The UK government is currently spending a staggering £6 million a day to house illegal immigrants. Not only would these plans massively reduce these costs, but they would signal to those intending to travel to the UK that Britain isn't a soft touch when it comes to illegal migration. The left narrative comes from BBC News. These plans could amount to arbitrary detention and breach human rights laws. To house those fleeing persecution and war zones in such conditions is cruel and inhumane. The conservative government needs to urgently reconsider its course and find alternative solutions, starting with solving the asylum backlog, which has ballooned under its leadership. We have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 73% chance that the UK Labour Party will have a polling lead of at least 10% on January 1st, 2024. 
Our final story, NPR criticizes Twitter for a state-affiliated media label. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Business Insider, New York Post, CNN, Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, and Washington Post. On Tuesday, Twitter applied a U.S. state-affiliated media label to the account of National Public Radio, or NPR, a description usually designated for accounts like Russian government-funded Russia Today and China's Xinhua News Agency, the official PRC state news agency. CEO Elon Musk then tweeted how the company defines state-affiliated, which are outlets where the state exercises control over editorial content through financial resources, direct or indirect political pressures, and or control over production and distribution, while adding, seems accurate. NPR called Twitter's decision unacceptable, stating, We were disturbed to see last night that Twitter has labeled NPR as state-affiliated media, a description that, per Twitter's guidelines, does not apply to NPR. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre defended the integrity of NPR journalists, saying they work diligently to hold public officials accountable, and that the hard-hitting, independent nature of their coverage speaks for itself. NPR is partly funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, an agency created by Congress decades ago to fund public radio and television with tax dollars. The company said its contributions comprise less than 1% of NPR's annual operating budget. However, Twitter has yet to label several other media organizations funded by governments as state-affiliated. Voice of America, BBC, and Stars and Stripes, as examples, continue to operate on Twitter without being labeled state-affiliated. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from Caitlin Johnstone. With a step in the right direction, Twitter's state-affiliated media label has not been applied enough. The label has been pinned to outlets like RT and China Daily, while left off of known CIA-created U.S. propaganda outlets like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, and Voice of America. This designation should also be tagged on other outlets, which receive far more state funding than NPR, like the UK's BBC, Australia's ABC, Canada's CBC, and Saudi press agency. There's no issue with this label for NPR as long as Twitter applies the designation consistently and fairly. And Narrative B comes from the Wall Street Journal. NPR stands for freedom of speech and holding the powerful accountable. Twitter's designation of NPR as a U.S. state-affiliated media is equally disturbing, as it is unacceptable. NPR receives less than 1% of its budget from federal grants, including from the government-supported Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Most of its revenue comes from corporate sponsorships, along with dues and fees paid by hundreds of independent and locally-owned member stations all over the U.S. Newsweek is giving us our first cynical narrative of today's podcast. It says there were many speculations on Twitter following the platform's decision to label NPR as a propaganda outfit. One particularly striking said it was retribution for NPR executives' decision not to cover any live remarks by former President Donald Trump, including a speech he made to supporters after his Tuesday arraignment by a Manhattan district attorney. This may be simple politics at play. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, April 7, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. 
For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.